Australian author Kerry McGuinness makes the Australian outback come alive in suspenseful, best-selling rural mysteries that capture the soul and spirit of Australia. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and on Binge Reading Today, Kerry talks about her childhood in the bush with her father and four siblings, years that helped form her deep understanding of the natural environment. And she tells us how she got established as a best-selling author while working hard on an outback cattle station with her siblings. Our giveaway this week is historic fiction freebies for August, including Sadie's Bow Book One in my Home at Last series. And we also have an audio book sale called Enjoy Books Everywhere with a range of entertaining stories, including Poisoned Legacy, Book One in the of Golden Blood series, available at special sale prices for a limited time. Links to follow up on these offers in the show notes for this episode on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. I mentioned too, my latest mystery romance, Rosie's Rebellion, number three in the Home at Last series, is on pre-order at a special launch price of 99 cents for two weeks, starting August 16. Order online at your favourite ebook store. And remember, if you enjoy the show, leave us a review so others will find us too. Word of mouth is still the best way of recommendation. People love finding great books to read. But now here's Kerry. Hello there, Kerry, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you for asking me. It's great to be here. You've made a name for yourself as the author of stories set in remote parts of Australia and their immersive landscapes, and landscape is a very important part of your books. They're places where people can be lost or found, and it does seem to me that many of your stories have that theme of people retreating into that area when they've suffered loss or hurt and losing themselves and finding themselves. Is that a theme that fascinates you? Oh, I think it's just a convenient one. I don't know. I've never thought about it fascinating me, but you have to build a story out of something. And I think that's a convenient one to use that it also gives you an opportunity to show character development, which is also very important for a book. But the nature of the outback landscape lends itself to people wanting to lose themselves perhaps more than find themselves. Would you agree with that? Oh, that is true. And the reason I set all my works in the bush is because I lived in the bush all my life and I don't know how to write about the cities. That's why I choose the bush. I love writing about it. I love the uh, countries. The descriptive part of it comes to me very easily. I can see it in my head as I write because I've been over all the areas that I write about because if I haven't lived there or worked there during my working life, I make a point of visiting them before the book comes out. Now, your latest book, the one we're particularly focusing on today, is Bloodwater Creek. And it's a road trip mystery in a way. It's, It's set in the Northern Territory. You've seemed to have gradually moved from family stories to more crime mysteries. Some of the ones you've done recently have had an element of crime, but this is really a crime mystery, isn't it? 
Yes, it's more about crime than about the family saga things that I was more accustomed to write. But with me anyway, as I have written more books, I have grown more confident and moved away from the things that I started with that I seem to know most about. And so I'm chancing my arm a bit here in the crime field. I take care not to have lots of scientific details or anything like that because my characters are just normal people caught up in these circumstances who wouldn't necessarily know about DNA and all the rest of it. So I don't go there. But it's an extremely popular niche and, and it gives you a bit of freshness too, doesn't it? It helps keep it interesting for you. Yes, you can't write about the same theme over and over again or your readers will soon get tired of it. So your character, Emily, is a strong-willed young woman who's searching for her cousin, Aspen, who's gone missing, and, at, and gone missing in quotes. And at the beginning, it just seems that she might have wandered off with some friends and decided to join a commune or something. But as the story progresses, Emily gets a stronger and stronger premonition that Aspen is in real danger. And the criminal element becomes stronger as you go along. And I wondered, because that introduces that question about plotting and pantsing, whether you knew at the beginning that you were going to be writing a heavier criminal element or whether it developed as you went along. Oh, my stories develop as they go along. I start with a locality, decide whereabouts in the Australian outback I will set the story, and then I get my first character and give them a problem. Everybody needs a problem and a desire to do something about it. And then I just keep going. And uh, occasionally, if I get stuck, a good night's sleep usually works. And I wake up in the morning and think, oh, we can go there. So yeah. I guess I'm definitely a pants. I usually have a glimmering of how the end will be, and I work towards that. But in the middle, is always a mystery, even to me. And has it always been like that? I know your first two books were actually memoirs, weren't they? So you weren't doing the fictional thing at the beginning, but has it changed as you've gone along? No, the first two books were easy because I was only writing what I remembered. When I say easy, they were comparatively easy as far as making anything up went. And the other ones, the first one after that was the next one after the autobiographies was The Waddy Tree. And that was a story I'd had in mind for a very long time. So I had the whole of that in my head, but after that, it was just Let's see where it goes. You can always delete it and do the page over again. Yes, that's right. This book I've read somewhere was inspired by the war cemetery on the Adelaide River. And I wondered if you could tell us how that sparked into a work of fiction. I was traveling before COVID. I used to travel every year somewhere in Australia and occasionally overseas. And I went through Catherine. I think I'd gone to Darwin for a fortnight's holiday or something because I'd never been to Darwin before. So this was a fair while ago. And while I was there, I was looking around for things to do. And I took a trip down to the Catherine Gorge because that was another thing I hadn't seen. And um, on the way back, we stopped at Adelaide River and I took a walk around the town and it was late when I got there. I couldn't get into the cemetery, but it was so peaceful and serene. It was such a beautiful spot and so sad. I went back next morning before we left and walked amongst the stones and looked at the dates and worked out how young all the people there were. And I thought, I really must get this into a book sometime. And then when the opportunity came with Bloodwood Creek, I thought, ideal, I'll use that. 
So those were Second World War deaths, were they? Yes, and the dead from uh, the bombing in Darwin in the post office. So there were civilians there as well, but mostly they were soldiers, airmen, naval people. Both Aspen and Emily are strong characters in different ways. And I also gather from what I've read that the inspiration for them came from strong women that you knew in your own early days. Could you expand for us a little on that? All my female characters, unless I want them to be real whips, are based on the women I knew growing up in the bush, the wives and sisters and mothers sometimes of the people that lived on the stations. And back then, it was no easy task to be a woman on a station in an all-male-dominated area and to be left alone sometimes for weeks at a time with just the kids or if you didn't have any kids, just yourself and the Aboriginal women at the station because the men were always away mustering or grading or doing something. And you had to be a fairly resilient sort of person to handle whatever came along and to not just give in to the loneliness because it was a very lonely life for them. They might get to town once or twice a year and um, they would get to have other women's societies on rare occasions like the annual race meeting or the annual camp draft or something like that. But um, there was no ducking out for coffee or picking up a phone because there were no phones to talk to your friends. And um, the mail was usually once a week or once a fortnight. So it was a very lonely place for a woman to uh, to be. So I just used uh, a template, if you like, of uh, the women that I remember meeting as a child. We're talking about your childhood quite a bit. So perhaps we might right now at this point ask you a little bit about that extraordinary childhood. You have featured it in those two memoirs that we mentioned, Pieces of Blue and Heart Country were those memoirs. Tell us a little bit about what did happen in your childhood and, and how you were raised. My mother died when I was six and my father was responsible for five children, one of them at that time, one 12 months old. It wasn't an easy time for him. He was a Second World War veteran. He'd been in Tobruk and he'd suffered badly during the war, which resulted in depression and injuries as well. So he wasn't at all what you'd call healthy. And these days you'd say he had mental problems, but he was badly shell-shocked, as they used to call it, after the war, and he was the nervous wreck for years after that. But he battled along in town with us for a while. He had a career. He was a fitter and turner. And we were in Renmark when the big flood came in 56, and everything was flooded in the town, and he decided to get out. So we went to Sydney, God knows why, and he got a job there in our field engineering, and then one day he just fed up. I think it was a very bad traffic jam we got caught in and we were driving somewhere and he said, I've had this, we've got to get out. He said, what about we go back to the bush? He was asking us, I was, what, so I was 12 and I'm the second eldest in the family and we all agreed this was a good idea because we loved traveling. We'd been traveling all our lives really. He never stayed anywhere very long. So that's what we did. We went back to the bush and eventually, the next year actually, that was the year the Sputnik came over, so that would be 57. And uh, the next year we were in Alice Springs and he bought a four-wheel trailer and 12 horses, 11 or 12 horses, 
And we got the tailor towed out of town and to a place with a yard and started breaking in the horses. And then we had wagons and our transport and off we went. So that was the beginning of it. We were all thrilled. We didn't have to go to school. So that was a big thing, although I came to regret it really greatly afterwards. He taught us bush skills and how to ride and work horses. And we just kept traveling and uh, moving until we finally were old enough to work when I was 14. And then we started contracting on stations. And a little after that, we took up driving. In those couple of years, how did he actually feed you? Oh, in those days on the stations, you could always get work because uh, he would take on whatever job, go to a station. And it was camp cook once. Another time he cooked at the station, he was horse breaking. He was me, a boar man, looking after boar. He was a pumper. Whatever they wanted done, he could do it because uh, men of his generation had been raised in the bush. They had a tremendous amount of skills. He was a farrier and a welder. He could do anything with horses. And he was a very good cattleman. So if nothing else, he could work in a stock camp. That's fantastic. So then how did you manage to get that education that enabled you to become a writer in later life? Were there important mentors for you that came along? When we bought the station in 62, I think it was, and then we sold it and bought another one in 66 where we stayed for 40 years. And it was while we were there, we didn't have a a mail service because it was a very remote place, but it was while we were there that I decided, because I was getting nowhere with my writing, I couldn't spell and my English was appalling, but I kept writing stuff and sending it off, hopefully, to magazines and not getting anywhere. And I decided I had better get some education. So I wrote to uh, the secondary correspondent school in Brisbane and enrolled with them in English and some other subjects. What was it? I think it was ancient history. Don't ask me why. It just seemed the only thing that I could possibly do because all the others looked too intimidating on the sheet they sent me. And so I got high distinction for the English. And on the strength of that, I wrote to the Queensland University and asked would they like to let me do distance education with them. So I got my arts degree that way. And how old were you when you started that course? Oh, I was in my 20s. I remember it took me, I think it took me eight years from the time I started with the secondary subjects until I got my degree because I was working full time. And as I say, we didn't have a mail service. We used to get our mail once a month, which sort of would drive over to that next property, which happened to be an Aboriginal mission. And we'd pick it up there once a month and send it out once a month. So getting assignments in on time was always a big problem. And... You mentioned that you'd been writing already. Was this something that was just inside you that you wanted to do right from the beginning? When did you first start writing? Or do you remember not a time when you didn't write? Oh, I started when I was nine years old. Did you? Yes. I used to write for the Piccaninny's Pages and the old Women's Own magazine, which was around in the 60s. And what sorts of things did you write then? Oh, little poems and little stories and anagrams and things like that. I was always a very good reader. And because I'd had rheumatic fever when I was nine and uh, wasn't allowed to play sport, I read tremendously. Always had my nose in the book. And they had this little thing with the, on the Piccaninny pages where you wrote a little story made up entirely out of the titles of books you'd read. That was a doddle for me because I'd read hundreds of them. <laughs> and where did you get those books when you were in the country? 
Oh, no, we were living in town at this time. We didn't actually leave. And this was before the 56th flood. We didn't actually leave till after the flood because I was born in 45. It's very interesting because going back to your books, one reviewer said anything McGuinness writes begs to be read aloud around a campfire. And it seemed to me that the storytelling aspect of writing was also very important to you. And I wondered if you'd had stories read to you when you were younger or how you'd actually got into that storytelling thing? Oh, I think that we probably did. All my family has always read. We, we probably did have stories read to us when we were kids, but I don't remember. I barely remember my mother at all. And for the rest of it, there was nothing like the bush to encourage storytelling because the only entertainment of an evening in the stock camp is yarning. Sit around the fire and tell stories or you play cards. And I was Never any good at cards because I'm hopeless at maths. But I was a very keen card player and he was always losing his temper with me because I couldn't add up quickly enough. We used to talk and uh, you'd get a few old blokes together and listen to them and it was just fascinating. The things they'd seen, the things they'd done, the places they'd been. And I suppose that probably spurred me on a bit too. There seems to be a strong element of that rural storytelling in the Australian culture generally. You think about the glamorization of Ned Kelly and Banjo Patterson's Man from Snowy River. There's a strong thread of rural storytelling. Do you identify as being part of that? Do you see that as a river that flows onto your banks? Oh, I don't know. I can recognize that it's there. But part of the Australian vote for the underdog, isn't it? And again, the government type of thing that's part of the Australian character. Not always admirable, but it's there. And I suppose there might be a little bit of it, but it makes a good story if the little guy wins in the end anyway. So I suppose any writer could use that. Yes. Reviewers have also commented about, of course, your landscapes, how wonderful you are at rendering landscapes, and they compare it to a painterly eye. Did you ever see it that way yourself? Were you ever drawn to art as well or painting? Oh, yes, I did. When I was a, a kid, I really liked watercolours. And I used to paint scenery, but as I got older, apart from the fact I didn't have paint, so I'd, when we were in the bush, you couldn't get that sort of stuff, but I would sketch a bit. And then when I got some paints, I started again, really disappointed because I could never reproduce what I could see. And so I gave it up and I thought, if I can't paint, I will do it with words. And I suppose that's why, because I see it as if I was looking at a picture and, but I haven't the skills to, to make the picture live. So I have to use words instead. Yes. So how did you find a publisher? Did you find a publisher and they encouraged you to do the memoirs or did you do the memoirs and then look for a publisher? I dreamt of writing a book, but I was mostly into short stories and uh, competitions. And I, I had a selection of short stories that later became pieces of blue. And uh, one of them I was so pleased with that I dared to enter it into the Mianjin contest. And uh, much to my surprise, I won. And oh. it drew the attention of a, a woman in Melbourne. And mm. she contacted me and asked me, did I have any more like that? And I said, yes, I had quite a few of them. So she asked me to send them along and uh, I did. And it was she who took them to uh, Penguin. And they agreed that if there were some linking stories, linking sections written to make it into a flowing story rather than just a series of short stories. Because as she kindly pointed out, no unheard of 
writer with no history behind it ever gets a short story unless she said, they do that once she becomes successful. I thought, oh, pardon me. But anyway, that was how it started. And then that was going to be it for me. It was, I was just going to be that one book. And then I was going to go back and write short stories and articles for magazines and things. And she said, what about if the sequel? You're only 16 or 18 or whatever you are at the end of the book. She said, what about the rest of it? So I wrote the second one and they took that. And then I thought maybe I could do a fiction one too. So then I started on the Waddy Train. Just explain for people who aren't familiar with it what the Mianjin contest is. Oh, Mianjin is, as I understand it, Australia's foremost literary magazine. So it's very prestigious magazine to have your work appear in. And they had quite a healthy prize back in those days too. So I was very thrilled about it. That's fantastic. So you mentioned that you were working full-time. What kinds of jobs were you doing while you were writing these books? Oh, there were three of us with uh, a station to run. And um, they only had the three of us. And um, during the 70s was the time of the first beef crisis when you couldn't sell your cattle. And uh, there was a meat beef mountain somewhere in the world that they were trying to get rid of and nobody was buying Australian cattle anymore. And it was a very bad time that coincided with uh, some nasty tropical cyclones in the north. And because it was all open range, no fences or anything, it was just getting towards the end of the 70s that the American government said we will not buy any more Australian cattle until they've all been tested for TB and brucellosis. So we had to, on top of all our other problems, we had to put up a boundary fence, an internal fence, and we had to test every beast on the property and we could only sell them under a green tail tag, which meant that they had to go to a designated meatworks where uh, they were, were sold at an, an asset price. I don't know who set the price, the government or somebody set the price and you, that was it, take it or leave it. If you didn't, you couldn't sell at all. So it was very hard times and we were all, three of us, my brother and sister and I were working uh, flat out all the time just to keep the place running and uh, to get by. Yeah. You mentioned before we started on, on the recording part that you also did journalism work for an American magazine sometime in those years. Tell us about that. You mentioned that the Americans were fascinated by your lifestyle there in the outback. Yes, I think that we were where they were a hundred or so years ago in the stock industry because they didn't have the big country anymore. I don't know when their country was first fenced over there, but the Gulf country, the Kimberley and the top end of the territory was the last in Australia to be boundary fenced and to get dragged kicking and screaming into the 20th century. It was a very expensive time. And I think that it was something completely new to the Americans to read about what their country probably was like under more, more years before anyone that was interested in America in cattle and horses. And they didn't have scrubbers. They didn't have uh, dogs or pulling down cattle. They didn't have um, the wild horses or anything like that we had over here. Particularly, they didn't have the space. Ours was not a particularly huge property, but we had 900 square miles and our neighbour had 3,000. And you just don't get areas of land like that anywhere else in the world, really. How many cattle did you have on 900 square miles? Not a great number. I think we got up to 5,500 probably at our um, best, but it's very poor country. You have to understand the country up in the north is... uh, very mineral deficient and it's very tough country for uh, 
anything to live in, including stock. It does better now that they've got Brahmins there, but back then in the 70s, it was all short-horned and they're British breeds, so you can understand they're not really suited to the tropics. Your dad's life sounds like it was, in a way, rather sad. Did it end better? Did he have a good end? He grew old and he died in Charter's Towers in a home because he was no longer able to get the medical help that he needed out on the station. He couldn't stay on the station. He had to go somewhere where he could get medical help and assistance. Yeah. Um, But he lived to be 85, which, considering the life he had, wasn't so bad, really. He must have had some good years when you were all on that farm together. Oh, yes, yeah. And then I farmed, Jenny, their stations. Oh, sorry, station. (laughs) There's a big difference between a barn and a station. (laughs) I accept your rebuke very much. (laughs) But turning away from specifically talking about the books, if there's one thing as quotes the secret of your success in your writing career, what would it be? Oh, I think persistence. I meet a lot of people, all writers do. I say, oh, yes, I'm going to write a book one day. And you say to them, so what have you written so far? Oh, nothing. I'm waiting for the kids to grow up. I'm waiting for us to retire. I'm waiting for whatever. And I always think if you don't start today, you are never going to write a book because you can talk about it, you can dream about it, but you don't actually get a book out of doing that. You have to sit down and work at it every day. Yeah. So persistence is the main thing. Because it helps to have a plot. And it's a great advantage to have a bit of talent, but neither of those things will do you any good unless you've got the persistence to actually do it. Yes. And do you have, even now, do you still have a a routine? What would a typical writing day look like for you? Oh, I write every day except Sunday. I wrote this morning. I went to see my doctor. I came home. I wrote, had a cup of tea, (laughs) did some work around the house, practiced on my music a bit. And then had my lunch and then came and did this. But every day without fail, I write except on a Sunday. And do you use a laptop? No, I'm a desktop Mac. And when you said practice your music, what music do you play? Oh, in my old age, I'm learning to play the harp. Oh, beautiful. So we always like to ask our guests about their reading tastes. This is very much a podcast for people who are keen readers, we might even say voracious readers, what do you like to read? And are you or have you ever been a binge reader as such? I suppose so. I collect books. I have a huge collection of books and I like to get everything that my favourite author of the moment has ever written. So I've got shelves and shelves of things like Kate Morton and Robert Galbraith and Jodie Pickles and Oh, it goes on and on. Reginald Hill, Lindsay Barclay, Robert Hobb. I love Robert Hobb's books. And I recently discovered Rebecca Jonas. I used to be very fond of Mary Stewart, but the wretched woman went and died on me when she was in her 80s. So it was a bit unfortunate. Um, I always feel a good writer should be given an extra 20 years as long as she agrees to keep writing. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, There's many disappointed people when she stopped. Yes, I read everything. I read poetry. I love Shakespeare's sonnets. I read his plays. But I cannot be happy unless I've got a book waiting to be read and one that I'm currently reading. So I read all the time. It's very antisocial, but I live alone and I can read during my meals and in the evening and instead of watching TV and stuff like that, I tend to read. And you still read paper books, not digitally? Oh, no. Give me a book I can hold any day. I spend part of every day on the computer. I don't need any more screen time. 
Yeah. Yeah. Looking back down the tunnel of time, if there was one thing about your creative career that you'd change, what would it be? Mm. It may not be anything. It's just if anything came to mind. No, I really can't think of, of anything. I just blunder along from this to that, book after book. And as long as I can keep writing them, I'm quite happy about it. I don't spend much time. Once they're, once they're published, I'm sort of all focused on the next one. So and sometimes I even have to go back and read a book if I know I'm going to be interviewed about it. I think, oh, God, I better find out what it's about. That's why I've forgotten, not forgotten the book, but forgotten the details, the characters' names and things like that. Yeah, yeah. And how long does it take you to, to write one? What's your publishing schedule like? I do one every year at the moment. And while in the height of the uh, COVID, I did two because the library was closed. That was a disaster. The gym was closed. It wasn't far behind it. The, my local book group wasn't meeting anymore. I couldn't see friends. So I wrote two books to make up for it, just to have something to do. Yeah. You've been faithful to Penguin all through your career. That's true. They took me on, so it seems just proper that I stick with them. And it's a, a prestigious mark to have even today, isn't it? Yes, everybody knows Penguin, even if they are now Penguin and Random House, but um, everybody knows the little bird and the orange cover. So how far ahead would you write Bloodwater Creek? I guess you finished that 12 months ago, did you, or eight months ago anyway? Yes, I have since finished another one, which is now with Penguin and Rob started on a third, which is up to chapter six. Mm-hmm. And I know it's a, a kind of hackneyed question, but people love to know, we know about Adelaide, the Adelaide Creeks River Cemetery, but where do you get your ideas from? Have you got a notebook there of ideas still ready to work on? No, not really. They just seem to come. As I say, I get the setting and the people and think of a problem and some way of resolving it, and it just seems to flow from that. I know I was told once by an editor that I should sit down and make a plan and write it all out in chapters, what's going to happen next, and how this will work and how that will work. And I thought about it, and I thought, now that's not me, I can't do that. And admittedly, the way I write, if I change my mind, it means a lot of rewriting, but that's all right because I do it as I go. If I've decided that she's not going to live here, she's going to live there or something like that, I just go back at that point and change it all the way through. And it's also another way of editing as you go and picking up mistakes that saves you doing it at the end when you might be in a hurry and might miss them because you're just worn out from reading all these words over and over again. I like to do it as I go. Yes, yeah. What's next for Kerry as author? What have you got on your desk over the next 12 months? I will finish this one that I'm working on now. And then I have two more. One was a kid's book that I wrote years ago and never went anywhere with. So it needs rewriting. And another one is an idea for a fantasy novel that's just an idea at the moment that I'll one of these days I'll finish. I keep thinking, I thought I'd do it this year, but then I got this other idea for the book that I'm writing on now. And I thought, oh, I'll just wait. I've got an arrangement with the Almighty that I can't die until I finish all the plans I've made. <laughs> well, so, <and> it, <laughs> I hope I've got that arrangement with him. <laughs> as far as you're concerned, you have. <laughs> yeah. 
The fantasy novel, is that also set in rural Australia? Oh, no. No, I've read a trilogy, mainly during the, uh, during the lockdowns. And it's an imaginary country. And with all the fantasy things, it's saving the throne, saving the country, defeating the enemy, doing away with all the baddies. And it ran into three books, but Penguin wasn't interested in them because they said it's not the sort of genre you write. And I suppose having invested so much in my books, they don't want me to switch horses in midstream. So I sent the first one to uh, England and um, the other two I published myself. Also had self-published friends had a um, desktop publishing thing and, and they, they did it. So this would follow on from there. It's not part of the trilogy, but if it ever gets done, it's going to be set in the same country. And did you write that under your name, Kerry McGinnis? Yep. Yeah, no point trying to hide who you are. I wrote it, I'll stand by it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just that they do say that Penguin's quite right, that you get a following of people who like certain sorts of books and they often don't follow a, um, an author across if they do something radically different. And fantasy is definitely a acquired yeah, taste. You either yeah. love it or don't. So, and there's but, millions of fantasy books out there, just millions of them. But let us know what they're called in case people are interested in following them up. Oh, the first one is called Farseeker. Farseeker, F-A-R-S-E-K-E-R. Yes. And the next one is called The Burning Mountain. Yep. And the last one is called The Crow Road. And so you self-published two of them. What happened to the first? The first one I sent up to, I can't think what they're called now, in in England. Something like Sourcebooks or one of those. Yeah, I, I can't remember which one it was. Which was a mistake because I found out that they, uh, the British publishers don't freight their books around the world. If you go to an American publisher, apparently they do some of them anyway, which yeah. means you have to get it off the internet if you're in Australia, you won't find it in Australia. Yeah, no, but people are used to buying on the internet these days. That's true. These days it doesn't matter so much, but it would have been a big blow back before the internet because the only way you would have got it was to know somebody in Britain or to go there yourself. Mm, that's right. And that seems a long way even for me to go for a book. <laughs> now, Kerry, do you enjoy interacting with your readers and where can they find you online? I actually can't because I don't do much online stuff. I'm absolutely useless with a computer except for writing on it and getting yep. emails. Uh, well, you saw how much trouble I had getting on to a Zoom meeting. So I'm afraid I don't have a blog page or anything like that, but they can always write to me if they want to. Lots yeah. people used to before the internet came into being. And do you do book tours these days? I've cut down on them. The publishing houses have cut down on them drastically, but I do interviews and things like that. And I have a book launch in the library, so Bloodwood Creek and the local library, that sort of thing, talk on the ABC book hour and things like that. Yeah. Look, that's lovely. And you can always be contacted through your publisher too if they're, if they're really keen to hold, get hold of you. That's absolutely correct, yeah. Look, it's been wonderful talking, thank you. You've had a remarkable life and I think it's fantastic the way that you've continued on. To, how many books have you got published now? 12 or 13 or? I think I've got, I think I might have 15. I'm not quite sure with Penguin and the other three that them fantasy Yeah, ones. yeah, yeah. Actually, I don't think I was including the memoirs in that. So, yeah, that's 
a remarkable achievement. And I love the names. The names tell you exactly what you can expect from the story. Croc Country, The Roadhouse, Mally Sky, Out of Alice, Wild Horse Creek. They just summon up images, even the, the titles do. So has the next one coming got a title yet? No, not yet. The title that I had on it, the publisher didn't like much. Every so often they title a book. Fair enough, they've got to sell it. And the book, the cover and the title has to say, pick me up and read me. So, and I'm not particularly good at titles. I leave it to them. Great. Look, thank you so much for your time today, Kerry. It's been a pleasure to talk. Oh, thank you, Jenny. It's been lovely to meet you. Next week on Binge Reading, Sharon Sala is one of the most successful romantic suspense and contemporary sweet romance authors right in today, with over 100 books published, a roll call of awards, and a legion of fans who follow everything she writes. She discusses her latest suspense series, Secrets and Shadows, and the importance of her Native American heritage. That's next week on Binge Reading. And remember, if you enjoy the show, leave us a review so others will find us too. That's it for today. See you next time and happy reading.